Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So a busy programme ahead of us tonight. Let's say hello to the panel and we start in Kilrush, I believe, in County Clare with Aina Aina. Hello, Derek. How are you doing? Yes, I'm in County Clare. I'm in Kilrush, where I've been over to Looped. I've been overlooking at the sea and I saw lots of puffins and they had their mouths filled with sand deals, mm. which is great to see, given the, the, the scarcity of, of sand deals and puffins. So that was a lovely sight. And then, of course, the dolphins are being seen by everybody else up and down the coast from Kilkee south to Looped. Everybody else except me. When I go out to see dolphins, they all seem to go on their holidays someplace until I'm safely on, but I am assured that they are here. So with any luck now, the basking sharks might come and I'd see those as well. But West Clare is living up to its wildlife reputation and it is great to see it. So this is where I'm talking to you from, Derek. Isn't it great? Fantastic. And appropriately enough, you mentioned Puffins. Niall Hatch was at the Cliffs of Moher last Tuesday for that very reason to make a documentary for the programme about Puffins Nile. Yes, so in another part of County Clare and it really is magical at this time of year especially and I was delighted to see some of the puffins still there. It's at that time of year when it's kind of touch and go. It's when they start to depart from the breeding colony so if you miss time it even by a day or two they could all be gone but thankfully there are quite a few of them still swimming around in the water underneath the sea stacks and the cliffs there and the weather was glorious and sure where else would you want to be on a day like that? And we'll be having a little report from you later from that very spot. Yes indeed, hope it sounds okay. It'll sound fantastic, Niall. Now, Richard, I see that James Ephraim Lovelock died during the week. He was an English independent scientist, environmentalist and futurist and indeed a friend of Mooney Goes Wild. Yes, indeed, Eric, that was very sad news for you and I particularly because we went to visit him on the occasion of his 100th birthday. Mm -hmm. And he entertained us royally, himself and his wife, and we had a great afternoon discussing all kinds of things. And how lucid he was. Absolutely. When he was 100, you forget that he was 100 at that time. But he was a youngster, really, when it came to discussion. And he went back over his life and things he did and things that happened. Most interesting man. Sorry to see him go. Now, he was well known for many things, but in particular, his Gaia hypotheses. Can you explain? Well, the Gaian theory was a theory that the Earth is a kind of uh, an organism, if you like. Organisms want to keep themselves intact, so they correct things, so that they maintain equilibrium. And he thought the Earth, like your body, if the temperature rises, your body compensates. If you need more oxygen, your breathing speeds up. And he thought the Earth did the same sort of thing, that it regulated itself, that it watched aberrations and it corrected them. But he was also an inventor. Yes, his great invention really was the electron capture detector, which he had there with us. He showed it to us, if you recollect, when we were there. Now, this device measures CFCs in the atmosphere. Very damaging. They damage the ozone layer leading to the great hole over Antarctica, which caused so much fuss long ago. Well, he invented that and he came to Ireland to test it out. He wanted to go to the most pristine air around and he argued that the air coming in across the Atlantic was going to be purer, have lower levels of CFCs. Once it crossed into Britain and Ireland, it went over cities and it picked up the pollution and he claimed to have demonstrated that. But he spoke very warmly of his days mm. in Ireland, if you recollect. We can have a listen to a clip from tomorrow night's repeat programme just to whet your appetite. Here it is. What was your, your greatest invention? What was the really outstanding no. invention in your life that you have? Well, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> These two things. Oh, my gosh. I'll come back because I'm comfortable there. That was a thing called the electron capture detector, and it found the uh, CFCs in the atmosphere strangely uh, over Ireland yes uh, the, over Britain and Ireland but you did a lot yes. of work over Ireland was Ireland superior because it had a cleaner air or was less polluted so you went yeah. there for that reason but you're so right and uh, you're lucky people <laughs> can <laughs> you explain them. to our listeners and to me exactly what the electron capture detector invented in 1958 by your good <laughs> self is what it does and why it was so important 
at the time, it was the most sensitive device for finding contaminants in the air uh, that was in existence, and not just slightly more sensitive, uh, it was sensitive by an order of several million times more sensitive. Indeed, I think it now uh, that it's a quantum device, really, although at the time, being an inventor, I was less concerned with what made it work than uh, having it work. It has another virtue, which is quite rare with devices. It's an absolute device. In other words, by knowing what the current flowing in it, when there's a signal comes in, you can calculate accurately the amount of the compound in the air. And you can hear that interview with James Lovelock tomorrow night in the Munigoswad slot from 10pm right here on RT Radio 1. He died last Tuesday on his birthday. Can you believe it? The 26th of July, he was 103 years old. Anyway, tomorrow night, RT Radio 1 from 10pm. Let's say hello now to Terry Flanagan, who seems to have been in every corner of Ireland over the past few weeks. Terence. I have indeed, Derek, following all kinds of animals and all kinds of plants. And while I'm travelling, I'm listening to the news in the mm-hmm. car. And isn't it ironic that the breaking news in the media about the common cranes breeding here in Ireland, for the first time in 300 years, when we've been reporting this for four years now. Even... <laughs> That's always the way, Terence. It's always the way. When you think of it, last year, ecologist Dr Mark McCurry, he was on the programme and he was talking about their nesting activities in the Midlands since 2019. Now, we know they were unsuccessful in 2019 and 2020, but it's thought that they did manage to fledge at least one young bird last year. But there's even better news this year, Derek. They've nested again, and this time they have successfully hatched two chicks, and they're doing really well. So why have these birds reappeared after hundreds of years? Well, a lot of it has to do with the habitat. They like wet bogs, and in the recent past, under the watchful eye of Mark and other ecologists, Bored Nimona have been re-wetting their bogs, creating ideal habitat, not just for the cranes, but also for a huge variety of other flora and fauna. It seems that the right conditions are being created for all this wildlife. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the cranes that are benefiting. Insects like the marsh fritillary butterfly, Ireland's most protected insects. Birds like egrets, we've got insects like dragonflies and damsonflies, and they're all now commonly seen on the bog. Anyway, I recently travelled to a secret location to meet Mark, and all I can say is that he took me to a bog in the Midlands, somewhere I'd never been before. Bogs, they're such wonderful places, absolutely silent. No cars, no people, just the sound of nature. And here in this bog, with the work that's being done, the results and sights are amazing. Such a variety of insects was incredible. And whereas I came to chat about the cranes, we ended up talking about so much more. Okay, Terry. Well, this is as far as I can bring you. Uh, We're standing on this lovely re-wetted cutaway bog. We're looking out at this lovely wetland. And just in the distance, this is where these cranes have come and and nested. So we're not actually going to get to the site of the nest. Now, I understand that and you want to keep it a secret for very good reasons. Absolutely. Well, sure, we want to avoid disturbance to uh, the, the crane nest. This is obviously the first crane nest in Ireland for probably going on 300 years that we're aware of. And it's really exciting. So we want to give these birds as good a chance as possible. Now, did cranes nest here last year and the year before? They did, so we're really excited. I was in talking to Derek last year. They produced two chicks last year. We weren't sure whether those chicks were predated or whether they got away, but we're really happy that they came back again this year, and this is their third year, and they have now produced two more chicks. So in the past week or so, those chicks have been uh, running around and they're, they're starting to follow their uh, mommy and daddy and, and look for insects. They're starting to forage. Now, this is a real good news story because cranes have been extinct in Ireland for about 300 years. 
Yeah, they're a very iconic bird. Uh, they're, lots of people would be uh, like aware of the hern. But this bird, the Korean, would nearly stand uh, you know, twice as tall, nearly as tall as, as you and I, like between 1.5 and 2 metres. And uh, they were hunted. They were hunted for food and probably for feathers. And this is why they went extinct, uh, you know, 300 years ago. But they were very common 300 years ago because I know they were used for food. Yeah, and seemingly they were very highly regarded in in mythology. Uh, Lorcan O'Toole has written a book about this, and he has looked at um, place names across Ireland that, you know, indicates cranes were in these wetlands. The crane is very similar to the heron, and a lot of people in Ireland would refer to herons as cranes. So they must have some association with people. They must have gone back for hundreds of years. I, I think so, and sure, my own dad, uh, I'm from County Antrim originally, uh, my own dad calls the hern, the hern cran. And probably it's one of these names where uh, it's associated with, uh, you know, a, a tall wetland bird where, uh, you know, has big long legs and, and, and some of these names, uh, you know, were associated with, you know, several different species. So it obviously talks to how, you know, these birds have had a long association with the Irish landscape. And is it true that at one stage, when they were here in Ireland, that they were a pet? Yeah, seemingly so. Uh, you know, I don't know how you would keep a, a crane as a pet. Now, uh, I'm thinking about the poor cat in, in, my, in my house, and uh, it's obviously a pet. You know, what would you do with a crane? Uh, obviously, it'd be outside, I presume, uh, and you'd have to feed it every day. Like, you know, maybe it was a guard, like a goose. I don't know, you know. So let's talk about developing the new habitat, because Bordnamona are now no longer extracting peat. They're into the creation of energy, but also into restoring the environment. Yes, we stopped uh, producing peat uh, two years ago, and the whole company has changed direction. It's very much focused on on renewable energy, on the circular economy, and really delivering, you know, supporting Ireland in terms of delivering on the National Climate Action Plan. And so that, that from a commercial side, that means renewable energy, but Bordnamona is a significant landowner. We have 80,000 hectares of land. And some of that land will be used for biodiversity. Biodiversity will be the main land use. And like other sustainable land uses will be important there as well in terms of amenity and, and so on. But a lot of these uh, sites are going to be rewetted and are going to support fantastic biodiversity. What are the benefits of that? Well, there's there's huge benefits. Uh, obviously, Bordemona are rewetting lots of bogs in the Midlands now as part of the Peatland Climate Action Scheme. This is a scheme funded by government and by Bordemona. It has an overall budget of 108 million, and it wants to deliver rewetting of 33,000 hectares of these cutaway peatlands over the next few years. So last year we rewetted 8,000 hectares of peatlands, which is is amazing, really. That's across 19 bogs that involved a lot of our staff that were you know, previously involved in peat extraction, but now they're carrying out activities to re-wet these bogs. And that means getting into an excavator and blocking up drains that they formerly would have maintained in the past and carrying out all our actions to bring water levels to the surface of the peat. So when we talk about re-wetting, we want that bog, that residual peat to be soggy and wet and that's if we can get into that condition, that's brilliant for climate action because it means we're locking that carbon into the ground. And it's also fantastic for biodiversity. Sure, we're standing here and sure the flies are buzzing all around us. This is definitely good for pollinators. We can see dragonflies and damselflies and butterflies. And again, all these species have naturally colonized. So it just shows the power of nature again to recolonize and what we want to see is that recolonization in a wetter landscape rather than a, a drier landscape. So how is this re-wetting helping the crane? Well like we're really excited in that these birds came to Ireland and they've chosen to breed in one of these re-wetted peatlands. So it indicates that this is a, a, a developing habitat 
uh, these rewetted peatlands, like this area of where we're standing in, this was bare peat 20 years ago, and now it's rewetting naturally and it's developing, you know, lovely carpets of bog cotton. So it's not just the cranes. The cranes are big animals that all of us can see, especially when they're flying across the sky because they're really slow flyers. It's all about the little things as well. The dragonflies, the damselflies, the flies, everything else like that. It's all helping our biodiversity. Yeah, it is. Like in the summertime, sure, everything is buzzing. And so like it just shows, demonstrates the power of nature. As soon as you turn your back, sure, we know this from our gardens, as soon as you turn your back on a bare piece of ground, nature will colonise. And so this is what we're seeing in relation to you know, rewetting. We, we see rewetting, uh, we see a lot of peatland species and wetland species recolonising. We see these habitats developing. And sure, as soon as these habitats develop, birds like the common crane, but other species that are increasingly rare in the wider landscape are starting to colonise these fantastic places. Dr Mark Corrie talking to our own Terry Flanagan at an undisclosed location in the Midlands on a re-wetted bog managed by Bord Namona. Now Terry, there is a reason why we don't tell people where this location is. Of course there is, because we don't want people traipsing all over the place and frightening the birds. Remember, there are only a pair of them here at the moment. So we'd like to to build this up so that the numbers do increase and then people can enjoy them. And the bogs, they're a wonderful location. Mm -hmm. And as Mark was saying there in in the interview, in that report, it's not just about the cranes. It's a much bigger picture than that. And it all goes back to the habitat. Now, I've been involved in this for the last 20 years or more when I was teaching. Every year I used to take the transition year students down to the Irish Peatland Conservation Council down in Lullymore and we used to go out and we used to block up the drains in the bogs. We used to go and we used to remove these invasive species. We used to remove things like the alder. And why? So that this particular plant, a little plant called the Devil's Bit Scabious, would thrive. And why do we want this plant? Because it's the food plant for Ireland's most protected insect, the marsh fertillary. And I'd have to say in that time, Lullymore Bog has probably become the best site in the country for these butterflies. So it just goes to show that looking after the habitat does so much more than just looking after one species. It looks after everything that's present. Lullymore Bog is where you were a couple of weeks ago. That's not where you are looking at the cranes. Absolutely not. Yeah, just no, on the old chance fact, people think you've given away the location. <laughs> as if anything, it's miles and miles and miles away from Lullymore Bog. Well, Terry, it's not you, even in that county. Not even in that county. Terry, you taught for 40 years now. I remember being in a place called Gainesville in Florida one time and I was out on one of these airboats on the swamps tracking alligators and they were eye-shining alligators. So the students with Professor Louis Gillette, who's now since passed away, would take big spotlights to yeah. see and they'd shine them on the water and you'd just see all these red eyes and then they'd go after and grab the alligators onto the flat boats and they would blood them and weigh them and measure them and all this kind of stuff and I remember saying to him did you ever lose any and he said you mean the students and I, I said no I the alligators I'm just wondering with the great number of students you brought down to the bogs of the years did you ever lose any no I never lost any but one of the things we used to do every year when we were finished because they were knackered remember these are Dublin kids they're coming down to the bog it was something totally new for them. They'd want to bring their phones and say, no, leave your phones at home, there's no reception. And can we bring money to go to the shop? There are no shops around. And when they get out into the bog, because we used to have to walk to the bog, and they'd stand there, and they were absolutely amazed. You couldn't see a person, you couldn't see a house. And I used to say to them, now, stop talking and listen. They could hear nothing except the sounds of nature. Oh, the and they absolutely and the loved it. Bodies. But what we used to do at the end was I used to go to a, a little soggy piece, and I used, because they were in their, their old clothes, we used to go to this piece, I used to let them jump up and down and they'd go down maybe to their ankles or sometimes maybe even to their waist in the bog and they absolutely loved it. I bet they did. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, Terry. Talk to you next week. Bye. Okay, slán. Inch by inch, row by row How to make this garden grow All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground Someone bless these seeds I sow Someone warm them from below Till the rain comes tumbling down 
reminded me why we're playing Macon and Clancy's Garden Song. Oh yes, okay, I see it now. Well, it's not every day we hear an item in praise of weeds. Perhaps the most persecuted and unloved group in the entire plant world. But listen to this. Weeds are far more valuable in supporting biodiversity than we give them credit for. Right now, roadside verges, neglected parts of the garden and untended corners everywhere are erupting with weeds in flower. Patches of sunny oxide daisies bejewel roadside verges. Tall yellow cat's ear cheer up laneways and overgrown gardens. Dandelions and clovers are still rolling out the red carpet for nectar-hungry bees and butterflies. Tall, richly scented stems of wonderful white-flowered meadowsweet fill up patches of damp ground. So writes ecologist Anya Murray. In the Irish Examiner, Anya also happens to be the presenter of Nature File on RTE Lyric FM. And earlier she spoke with another weed lover, Aina Nilauna. Hello Anya, it's good to talk to you today. Hi Aina. Anya, you're extolling the virtues of weeds and how important they are for pollinating insects. Now, the first thing I want to discuss with you is this terrible pejorative term, weeds. This should only be used by farmers and by gardeners because a weed is a plant in the wrong place. Farmers want to grow crops, so that's what they want in their fields. Gardeners, God knows why, but they want to grow foreign flowers in their gardens and they don't want the native ones. But it should never be used for the contents of a hedgerow along a roadside. Surely the plants that are there are the native hedgerow vegetation. They are not plants in the wrong place. They are not weeds. So I think you and I should start a campaign down with the name weeds. They're wildflowers, except if they're interfering with crops. That is brilliant. I, I absolutely agree that weeds are only if they're in their, your flower bed or if they're somewhere where you really don't want them to be. But so much of the countryside, there are gorgeous wildflower verges erupting up with, you know, so many different species. Uh, and they're not weeds, but they're seen as weeds often. And I mean, even... Things like ragwort, which people, you know, people hate it. It, it's, it can be poisonous to cattle if they eat it. Um, but ragwort, there's been recent research in the UK that's shown that it's really important for so many different insect species and pollinators. Yeah, because they're full of nectar and the nectar then, which the insects crave, when they go to look for the nectar, they get themselves dusted with pollen and then the pollen is brought from flower to flower, thus making seeds. But I was just looking, I've been doing a bit of travelling lately up and down and looking at particularly smaller rural roads where people are living. People who build one-off houses in the countryside are obliged under the law to have an opening in their entrance where they can have sight lines and see out. But I don't know that they are obliged by the law to spray weed killer all over the place on either side so that you have dead brown strips on either side of their entrance. I mean, do you ever see anything worse in your life? No, you're absolutely right. And I've been, I, I, I travel the country a fair bit and I'm really shocked this year in particular to see so many roadside verges sprayed with weed killers. And it's not just around the, the, the entrance to the house. It's often 30 or even 50 metres each side of the entrance to the house that gets sprayed and it's so ugly like there's this gloopy brown dead gunk you know I I, I don't it's a different in perspective obviously but I don't understand how that looks in any way nicer or even tidier than a green verge erupting with lots of different colourful beautiful smelling wildflowers so there there is a there's a perception here of, of what is tidy And local authorities also often in parks or in greenways or or playgrounds tend to spray quite a lot too. And again, just on an aesthetic level, it's so ugly, but it's so it's the attitude of removing the resources for, for pollinators, for so many wild insects who absolutely need those flowers, like you say, to get the pollen. 
one of the perceptions is that nettles and docks are the most noxious ones that they feel they must be removed. Now, nettles and docks grow where your soil is really rich in nitrogen and phosphates. So in poorer places where people are setting out wildflower meadows and reducing the fertility of the soil, the nettles and the docks don't occur. So I wonder if this spraying of the hedgerows is somehow a vendetta against those. And it isn't true to say that the nettles are completely useless. They are a huge food plant for many, many of our caterpillars that grow on to be our lovely butterflies, our lovely peacocks and red admirals and the painted ladies. All the caterpillars of those need nettles to feed on. So I think people should be more aware of the value of these for wildlife and not see them as ugly, nasty things that are just waiting to sting them. That's right. Yeah, nettles definitely, uh, there's, I mean, we don't like them because they, they do sting and they're associated with just unruly and wild, but they're really important for wildlife. The same is true for the ragwort, the buccaloin. People really don't like the ragwort and with reason that it can be poisonous. But there's new research which has showed that ragwort thistles nettles and dock they all they're, they're seen as as the worst of the of the weeds but some of these are twice as likely to attract bees as ours that would be recommended or you know bought in packets and and spread out and they support conservation listed insects as well they've got more nectar than many wildflower species um so they're really actually quite important as a resource and of course we don't think, oh, well, I want more insects. But I mean, I sit out every evening and I watch the swifts swooping around overhead. And I love the swifts and the house martins and the swallows. And sure, all our nesting birds at this time of year are either feeding nests full of the little hatchlings or the wee fledgling birds. They all need those insects because the insects are, are a protein rich diet for them. And if the weeds and the wildflowers aren't there, then we don't have enough insects and we don't have the insects to sustain the the bird populations that we love so much. So, you know, everything is really connected up and we need to to look differently at our our ideas of, of tidiness and control. So do you think it's a rural phenomenon, this business of attacking hedges along roads with weed killer? Do you think there's more of a positive attitude to letting things grow in urban areas? Or are we wasting our sweetness, Anya, on the desert air and nobody is playing a blind bit of heat to us? It's it's an interesting one because there is so many uh, really excellent initiatives out there. Like you, you like you say, there's positive actions and people are leaving their lawns to grow and they're they're leaving wild corners in the gardens. And these messages are definitely getting through. People are planting up more native trees and there's so much positive, like in, in as you say, the tidy towns, they're, they're planting up hanging baskets, especially for pollinators or leaving wildflower verges to grow. And that's all for pollinators. And that's really positive. But then there's still another sector of people who are, are really keen on having everything very manicured, either covered with tarmac and cement and, and sprayed or or spraying the, the verges along the hedge like we were talking about it 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 makes no sense I would really hope that we see more and more of the the others winning out the community groups who are doing so much to plant native trees and let the wildflowers grow native trees are really important for for pollinators too we don't tend to think of that but like willow catkins in spring they support the early emerging bumblebee queens who need that that um pollen um and we don't tend to think of trees we don't tend to look up enough but native trees are important for the insect life as well which again in turn feed all of our native birds and you're Murray speaking with Aina Nilana. Niall, you wanted to comment on that particular interview? Yes, uh, Anya's absolutely right there about the importance of native plants. Uh, Anya and I used to work together in, in, in Birdwatch, oh. Ireland. Uh, she was with us there for several years and um, a wonderful colleague to have there as well. Very, very knowledgeable person. And what she's saying there about trees and, and, and native plants and insects is absolutely true. Um, our native plants support a huge diversity of insects, both for pollination purposes, but also those insects are food for birds and for many other creatures as well. So native 
native trees they support many of the insects that birds like swallows and swifts really depend on you find uh, lots of, of other birds migratory birds like willow warblers and chiffchaffs and these other insectivorous birds they rely on them really heavily so they really do have an important role to play and it's always important to remember that native plant species in general will support far more insect species than non-native plant species will so it's really a no-brainer Mm. Now, I said earlier that you were at the Cliffs of Moher on Tuesday. What were you doing there? Remind the listeners. So I had the wonderful experience of being at the Cliffs of Moher on a glorious day last Tuesday. Uh, I was there to speak with uh, Ranger Tom Doherty, who's worked there for, for 16 years now at the Cliffs of Moher in a lovely, lovely spot. And I was there uh, first and foremost to um, be working on making a documentary uh, for the programme about puffins, one of my favourite birds. Perfect time of year to be there for them as well, because they're just at this stage leaving from their nesting colonies. If I'd been a week later, I might have missed them completely. But as it was, I saw plenty of them in the water just off the cliffs there. And the Cliffs of Moher are probably the easiest place in all of Ireland to see puffins, which is another reason that I went there. They're very accessible. I think this is something that a lot of people here in Ireland don't fully realise. People think that uh, seeing a puffin is almost impossible or it's going to be very, very difficult. And in many parts of Ireland, it is quite difficult because you have to get into a boat and go to an offshore island like Skellig Michael or Great Salty or Ireland's Eye, somewhere like that. So it does require a bit of effort. But at the Cliffs of Moher, you literally drive up to the car park, walk up to the cliffs and there are puffins in front of you. And at the height of the breeding season, and there are thousands and thousands of them there. So it's a great place to get to grips with them, get to see them and to talk to people about them. But this is the end of the season. The very end of the season. So those puffins would have arrived back in early May is when they arrived back. They nested burrows at the, on the grassy tops of the sea stacks around the cliffs there. Uh, so very inaccessible spots. And then during the months of May, June and July, they're feeding up their chicks, bringing them back all these sand eels and sprats, these tiny fish that they catch in, in deep waters out at sea. And this is precisely the time of year when that's coming to an end. The little pufflings, as the chicks are called, leave the burrows, they join their parents in the water and pretty quickly they head out to the Atlantic Ocean. So in another week or two, they wouldn't be there at all. So I timed it just right. Niall, you're welcome to the Cliffs of Moher and you've got a beautiful day for it and uh, we've got quite a few people here today. Well, Tom, absolutely. That, that's the understatement of the year. It's thronging with people here. I've never seen anything like it. You're right. I am very lucky to be here, first of all, to meet you and to see to see the cliffs um, from your perspective uh, here working as a ranger, um, but also to see these wonderful birds around us. Now, I'm here at the moment because I'm um, working on a documentary with Derek all about puffins, which we're going to have out um, around Christmas time on RT Radio 1. So taking the opportunity to see the puffins here before they leave just at the very end of their breeding season. They're going to be heading away from the cliffs any day now, uh, but also enjoying the wonderful spectacle here, seeing the peregrine falcons and the fulmers and all the seabirds on the cliffs there. It's an absolutely wonderful place to visit from a scenic point of view, from a wildlife point of view, and also this whole human experience. There must be people here from every country in the world, I think. Well, uh, people come from all over the world, and I even met a man from the moon. <laughs> you have to explain. An astronaut. <laughs> and a lot of them, are, they want to see the puffin. I'm not surprised people want to see puffins. They're, they really are special. I, I suppose that's why we're making the documentary about them and no better place to be because the Cliffs of Moher are internationally important for seabirds. Isn't that right? Oh, it is, yeah. We've thousands of birds here, like from the Great Black Bag, the Lesser Black Bag, the Fulmers, the Guillemots, the Razorbills, Chuffs, Peregrine Falcons. It's lovely just to stand and listen to them clamouring for spaces on the ledges of the cliffs. I understand that you've been working here as a ranger for 16 years now. And um, what does a ranger do at the Cliffs of Moher? Just keep an eye on the wildlife and the people, not to let them go too far towards the cliff edge, because it can be unstable at times. And also to protect the habitat, the small birds nesting like between the fence and the cliff edge. It really is. It's like it's actually like watching a, a nature documentary right in front of me with my own eyes. Quite, quite literally, that's what it's, it feels like to me. I think that here at the Cliffs of Moher, uh, you and your colleagues do a really good job of finding that balance between public access and then also making sure that the wildlife is secure. People here are very close to the wildlife. They have this amazing view out over the Atlantic Ocean. And yet the creatures here don't feel threatened at all. The people are kept away while still feeling like they're part of it. It must be difficult, though, to manage the, the sheer number of visitors that come here. How many visitors would you expect? to get in a day usually? Well usually there'd be uh, three to four thousand people a day like coming through. Before the pandemic uh, there was uh, there could be up in five or six thousand people. It's not easy at times like you know trying to keep them from going too close to the edge and walking on the green grass and um, destroying the habitat. 
Yes, yes, exactly. I think I should describe it for people who maybe haven't been here before, haven't been here recently and aren't familiar with what it's like now. There are very clearly defined pathways along above the top of the cliffs. A nice high wall that allows people to look over very easily, but it's nice and safe and secure, keeping people well away from the edge. I think it's a really nice job that's been done here. And I can see how also this fencing up to protect the wildlife that's a little bit further inland. And what a great place it is for wildlife. Just as I'm speaking to you now, I'm watching a pair of chuffs right behind you swooping around doing their aerobatics. One of my favourite birds, I have to say the chuff. Yeah, the chuff, I like the chuff. I can go back 20 years ago when I worked in the local quarries, the local people called them the crow with the red legs. And uh, the pathways like are good and the wall, the first wall that was built here was built by Cornelius O'Brien who built the tower and he built it to protect the people from being blown off in strong winds. And it was also a bit with the the builder who was building the tower. He said he was going to build a wall six foot high, two inches thickness and a mile long. And uh, the builder said, no wall will stand up to the weather you're going to get here at the cliffs if it's only going to be two inches in thickness. And then when he saw how he was building the wall, he knew that he had lost the 200 pounds that they had, (laughs) of a bit they had put up. Well, that was a serious amount of money then. It still is today, but even more so then. So he obviously lost out big time. Oh, yes. In 1835, like 200 pounds. So he had to do 200 pounds worth of work in the tower before he got paid. So talking of the weather, we're here today. The weather's absolutely glorious, lovely and sunny. The sea is almost flat, calm. There's not a breeze in the air. It's absolutely wonderful. I'd say that's not always the case. I'd say it must get pretty fierce here, particularly in the winter. What's that like? Oh, the sea can be in mountains. When there's a... Big swell in the sea, and uh, maybe an easterly wind, maybe blowing six or seven. The surfers come in abundance to just uh, challenge and ride that wave, aliens, which goes out from Al-Nasharak. I'm sure you get most of the tourists here would be during the summer months. That's obviously when a lot of people are coming here. But is it worth visiting throughout the year? Well, what people expect um, in the wintertime here, for example? Well, people come just to see uh, the wind, how strong it is to look out at the sea and see are those big waves crashing in and maybe coming up over the cliff, which if the wind is strong enough, it will carry some of the spray up over the cliffs. You mentioned earlier about the chuff, the, the crow with the red legs, but I believe you had a close encounter with a, another type of crow recently. Oh yes, um, there's quite a few rooks here and there's one that um, I began to feed as a juvenile. Um, well, he was one of a few. There was another one with a, had a broken beak, and I began to feed that one also. And they began to come closer and closer, and now they, some of them will land on my hand. And there's a few that land on my head from time to time when I wear a cap. That's quite a treat and a privilege, really, because they're usually very wary of humans. They give us a wide berth, generally. Oh, they are, and I tell the story about the rook that was in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, and I ask him, do they know the name of the character, uh, the librarian who had the rook in the movie, and his name was Brooks. Well, it's, it's certainly a treat to have that happen, and uh, you're obviously a man who really likes wildlife. What a great place to, to, to spend your days working here. I, I think you've got the perfect job, to be honest. I love it here, and uh, I love meeting people and telling them stories like you know all the stories don't have to be the truth (laughs) (laughs) the americans really enjoy that you know (laughs) oh how very irish the americans love it indeed anyway thank you very much indeed to tom and to niall and we'll keep you updated as to the transmission date of that particular documentary about puffins as you know we always have a mooney goes wild special in around the christmas period so that's likely when you'll hear it now the recent Heat wave has underlined the importance of projects around the world aimed at curbing climate change. Ireland is playing a role in one such project. Two young bison, reared in Photo Wildlife Park in Cork, have been released into woodlands in Kent. You might have seen that on the news. It is hoped that the release of Europe's biggest land mammals onto the landscape will make it more resilient to global warming, allowing hardier and more drought and disease-resistant species to grow. It is also expected to help with the biodiversity crisis as outlined by Cora Kunzman, wilding evidence ecologist with Kent Wildlife Trust. 
What we're hoping for is to increase the structural diversity, so through, again, the unique behaviour of the bison. They're hopefully going to create more layers in the woodland, they're going to create more open areas, so we'll have more sunlight come to the woodland floor, we'll have more native species that are going to seed, that are going to grow. So we'll introduce more structure into the woodland, which is going to create more, more habitats for species, more shelter, more food. So through all of those things and through increasing the invertebrate abundance, we're just hoping for more of everything. Exciting stuff, but is it likely to work? And could we see bison roaming the Irish countryside in the near future? Later, we'll be joined by Sean McKeown, Director of Photo Wildlife Park in Cork. But right now we're going to say hello to Evan Bowen-Jones. Evan is Chief Executive at the Kent Wildlife Trust. Hello, Evan. How are you today? I'm guessing pretty excited. Are you close to the bison now as we speak? Hugely excited, yeah. So, so I'm uh, sitting in the middle of Kent in a place called Cranbrook at the moment, which is about, I guess, 20 miles away from the site where we released bison on Monday. And can you describe the habitat that you've placed the bison in? Yeah, the site itself is a huge block of woodland that stretches around Canterbury. Most people have never heard of it, but it is actually about 12 square kilometres of woodland. So it's one of the biggest um, sort of semi-natural woodlands in the whole of England. And we, Ken Wildlife Trust, own uh, two big blocks of that. Uh, and the bison were released into the first block, which is a total of about 1,000 hectares. Um, and they've gone into a proportion of that as a kind of soft release area, and then we aim to get them out over as much of that uh, as possible over time. Is there a perimeter fence to keep the bison in and keep people out? <laughs> yeah, there's there's actually both. I mean, the the one of the challenges with this project, and the reason it's kind of so uh, much of a kind of pathfinder, is because the legislation in uh, in England at the moment makes it pretty difficult to do this. So bison are classified as dangerous wild animals under the DWA, as we call it, Act, which um, a lot of people think has been in need of reform for quite a long time because it also includes things like uh, red deer, um, which, of course, you know, if you go to Richmond Park in London and loads of places in, uh, you know, in, in the Highlands, for example, you'll see loads of red deer. And there's, there's people, you know, walking across areas with red deer. But theoretically, in law, um, you can't have unrestricted public access over an area where you've got a legally classified dangerous wild animal. So because we're obviously, uh, you know, wanting to do things uh, by the book, because this is such an important pilot, um, we have got an enormous amount of fencing. We've got um, the fencing for the bison themselves, which is actually just a standard stock fence, and that's all they need. And then we've got beyond that, about two metres away from that, we've got a six foot high fence to actually keep people from crossing the bison fence. Uh, and one of the things we want to prove is that that is really unnecessary and we want to get the bison removed from the DWA list. Yeah, they're not known for attacking people, are they really? No, they're, they're, they're pretty um, laid back beasts. I mean, you you know, on if you look at the moment on the web, sort of viral videos of... Of, of people being uh, butted by bison in Yellowstone Park. It's where people have tried to get a selfie with a bison and literally kind of put their arms around the, 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 the neck of a bull bison, which is a pretty daft thing to do, and you'd probably get that kind of reaction from a domestic cow. Uh, otherwise, they are extremely shy. They will run away from you. They'll keep their distance. Um, and we've been into enclosures in Holland where they've been using bison in this type of project for ages, and, and they've never had issues. Now, can you tell me how you think the bison are going to help restore natural habitats by just being present and also helping the fight against global warming? So really, I mean, bison are, you know, they're, they're really big animals, as you know. They, they weigh uh, the best part of a tonne. Uh, we don't have anything else that's that big in terms of native animals left. Um, and they, together with uh, the wild pigs, which are also going to be in uh, in Bleenwoods, which are kind of mimicking boars, 
uh, and uh, the, the the wild horses um, that we're going to have in there as well. That whole assemblage of herbivores, they will be doing um, the job of basically um, sort of creating that dynamism. So the bison themselves, they roll around, they create sort of sand pits, which you know lots of, uh, uh, say, invertebrates can take advantage of. So burrowing wasps and bees and things like that. They rub up against trees and just their bulk means that those trees are kind of and shrubs are knocked about and have to kind of regrow in different ways. They actually ring bark trees sometimes because they eat a lot of woody vegetation. And we've seen in Wildwood Park, and I'm sure it would be the same in Fota as well, that they, they'll actually selectively kill uh, certain trees. So you end up with standing deadwood, which again is good for uh, wood boring insects and things. Their fur provides uh, nesting material for birds. Their dung, again, kind of provides more food for other types of insects. And all of that, of course, then means that your insectivorous birds um, and other creatures benefit from that presence of that ecosystem engineer species. So it really creates structure in the woodland that we've never had before. So that, that kind of complexity of structure, complexity in the food web, um, and, and it just gives the broader biodiversity a boost. So we think actually the abundance of life, not just the kind of number of species that is going, uh, going to benefit, but the overall abundance of, of life in that woodland will be increased substantially. Evan, I would be very surprised if bison were uh, aggressive in any way. I remember being in Bielowice, in Poland, the source of the revival of bison and trekking for an entire day with a guide and only at the very end of the day did we manage to find some. And that's where the largest number of bison are living in the wild now anywhere. Yes, it took that long. They are elusive, interesting characters. But that herd is derived from a very small number of animals. One Herman Goring, whom we should mention, was instrumental in protecting them because he wanted that area reserved as a hunting lodge for after the war for himself but anyway put that aside when you came to select animals for your reintroduction you must have concentrated on the stud books of the various females and so forth how did you locate the most diverse individuals you're starting something that is going to go on in perpetuity and it is most important that you have as genetically diverse as you can but the options aren't great you're quite right and this is where partnering with not only photo but wildwood trust who actually are located right on the edge of the bleen is uh, really important we couldn't have done it without working with with these other groups and of course, as you say, they have been for years working within the European breeding programme for the bison, which is an endangered species in itself. Because uh, as you mentioned there, at one stage, they actually went completely extinct in the wild. Um, so all of the bison that we're working with effectively do come from zoo stock at one time or another. Um, but they're very successful in becoming kind of really wild animals. Again, as you, as you noted there, um, in Poland and now in the Carpathian Mountains, um, as I said before, in, in some of the projects in Holland, you can see they're properly wild animals. I'll keep their distance, stay away from you. But that point you made about genetics is critical. So we have um, the two females that have come from Ireland. We've got the matriarch actually comes from Scotland, Scottish collection. And we are waiting for a bull who's going to come in from Germany. And they've been selected very deliberately to get the maximum uh, genetic diversity into our initial herd. And we do think over time we will probably need to bring in other animals as hopefully that herd grows. And hopefully we then export some of those animals back out into the breeding programme and out into new projects, which hopefully will be doing more of the same thing in other parts of the UK. Well, how many would you envisage having when you reach saturation shall we say how many bison can your two woods sustain we don't really know because the thing is all of these habitats these areas are very very different so we've been to sites in uh, just just across the other side of the channel in in holland where they're managing bison uh, bison are managing sand dunes um, in holland they've also got the managing kind of grassland woodland mixes as you say there are other areas um, which are kind of pure woodland 
And all of these habitats have different carrying capacities of bison. So given that our habitat is actually going to change over time because of both the presence of the bison and the other animals and climate change, we kind of just need to see what happens. Our current licence, because as I mentioned, the whole thing is kind of licensed under the Dangerous Wild Animals Act, is for a maximum of 20 within the area that they were, they are currently going out into. But... As I said, it's part of this huge complex of woodlands which stretches for 12 square kilometres and the rest of that woodland is actually owned by other major conservation organisations with whom we're now sitting down and talking to about uh, potentially sort of ha ha having a core by scenario that runs across that entire landscape in time. And of course that will then mean we could have substantially more animals out in the wild than just that initial sort of 20 or so. Well, Evan, it's a fascinating project and we wish you all the very best of luck with it. Who knows, in time, we'll come over and visit you and have a look at the bison with your permission. We'll look forward to seeing you here. Yeah, look forward to it. Me too. Now, I believe we can talk to Sean McKeown, who's director of Photo Wildlife Park in Cork. They've had great success breeding bison, hence the reason they're able to give them out as part of this project to increase the numbers of bison right across Europe. As Evan has mentioned, these are an endangered species. Sean, when did you first get your bison? Well, we started getting bison in the late 90s. Uh, first three animals from Sweden and then two more from Germany, uh, from Stuttgart Zoo. We've had about over 50 births. And as the programme developed, and it's a breeding programme that's coordinated through um, the European Association of Zoos and, and Aquaria, it's for bison within Europe and uh, some zoos outside of Europe. And the idea was to start breeding enough to, so that they could start reintroduction of the um, European bison back to the wild. So that was started. We sent our first bison out of photo back to the wild in, in Poland into the Belowice forest. And that was a male and two females. Since then, we've sent animals to Romania. Uh, for a release programme in the southern Carpathian Mountains in Romania, some five or six to northern Spain, and then these last two females then that went to, to Kent in the UK. So we have another female here that is supposed to go to Azerbaijan to a, a reintroduction programme there, uh, and that will leave here to Germany, to Berlin Zoo, and by, would be joined there by other females from other zoos in Europe, and then they'll all be shipped together out to Azerbaijan. So that's supposed to happen in around the middle of September this year. And the possibility of them ever roaming across the Irish countryside in the future? What do you think? Um, I think it could be one of the one of the aspects that would happen when you have a lot of the peatlands restored, and where you have a lot of birch and willow growing, that you use the. Um, the bison to control the woodland because they will they will open up patches of it, make it open to sunlight, and then it, they'll have more diversity and plant life. Then, it's it's a matter for not for me but for the authorities to decide that. But there there will be opportunities like that arising in Ireland in the future. So, Sean, you must be delighted to see that your bison are now going to be roaming the English countryside. Yeah, I would uh, personally. I'd love it was in the Irish countryside, but. It is fantastic to see that. I actually got to see the animals in uh, Romania uh, and that was fantastic. That was really inspiring and uh, a, re a real jerker on the emotions. And they were roaming around in, in, in the snow. But the, the animals themselves were, were doing very well. It was four years after the, the release. I think there were um, about 12 animals released. But in that time, they'd grown to about 33 or four animals. And in, in, in that same area, they had bears, wolves and, 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 and uh, lynx as predators. So they'd survived uh, and the cows were doing quite, quite well. So it was great to see them back in the, in the wild and roaming uh, free in the natural habitat uh, and sort of running up, almost running up the side of a mountain when, when they saw us. So it was spectacular and particularly in the snow because when we saw them, they their whole backs and things were covered in snow. They had fantastic coats. The snow was staying on the animal, not melting, um, because they were so well insulated by the coat. Well, Sean, congratulations to you and your team at FOTA, and let's hope that these bison released into Kent will be as successful as the ones in Romania. Sean McKeown, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. 
That's pretty much all we have time for today. My thanks to Aineen Ilana, Richard Collins, Niall Hatch and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarleth Holland and our researcher is John Bellarotti. Don't forget that special programme about James Lovelock tomorrow night right here on RT Radio 1 from 10pm. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash mini. Until tomorrow, bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.